Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Jennifer Waits. I'm Paul Reesmandel. And I'm Eric Klein. On today's show, we're going to journey to a few college radio stations from my recent tours. And as it turns out, it's a very interesting time to be visiting college radio stations as this most recent academic year that we just completed in 2022-2023 was an active one with college campuses and radio stations coming back to life as we've seen pandemic restrictions easing. And we talked a little bit about this on podcast number 329 back in December 2022. Um, And on that episode, I talked about those themes a little bit. uh, And and we discussed my fall visits to four radio stations in the Albany area. So this will be sort of a... uh, an interesting companion to that episode. And on today's episode, we're going to be visiting Providence, Rhode Island and the New York City area. Uh, Before we get into that, I wanted to uh, briefly share with everybody an intriguing question that I received about college radio. KXLU at Loyola Marymount University has a live show that's been going for 50 years, which is pretty incredible for any radio station to have a show for 50 years. Alma Del Barrio, and it's been on since fall 1973, and they reached out because they were wondering if this might be the longest-running college radio show, and anybody who follows Radio Survivor knows that I'm always very dubious to... It's not a competition. It's not a competition, but... You don't have... You can be proud of how long your show has been on the air and not have to claim to be the best longest radio show on the air just one of many great radio shows that have been on the air for over 50 years exactly you know but i wanted to i wanted to research it a little bit to see if i could you know find anything you know it's very difficult to ascertain these first claims but you know there are some other long-running shows that are similar to this one where they've passed hosting duties to various folks over the years and i thought about wkcr at Columbia University that's had really long-running jazz programming since the early 70s, but I couldn't figure out if there was like a specific show that had been on for 50 years. And then I also thought about polka shows, because <laughs> there are a few stations that have had very long-running polka shows that have had actually, you know, different generations of hosts. So there's, uh, the ones that I dug up were not on college radio, but Interesting nonetheless, there's a show called International Polka Party that has um, been on the air since 1952 with varying hosts, and that's on a station in Minnesota. So just interesting digging into this, and I wanted to mention it on, on the show, on Radio Survivor, in case people are aware of other college radio shows that have been around for 50 years or more. We would love to hear about them. You can message us at podcast at radiosurvivor.com because, you know, I'd love to be able to share that information with folks. Yeah, I could, you know, we, you know, we always hesitate to, to to promise the listeners live on the air uh, what kind of programming decisions we might make based on information they send us. But there's a pretty good chance that if you inform Jennifer and the rest of the Radio Survivor team of a half century long a continuous running college radio show that we didn't already know about or remind us of its existence if we did already know that that will be something we celebrate here on our airwaves at some point or another because uh, that's a that's really fun yeah and college radio history is 
super important to me. Um, that's part of the reason why I like to tour stations. So <laughs> let's let's get into some of the yeah. tours. Um, so in March 2023, I visited the New York City area and also Providence, Rhode Island. And I guess let's let's start. I want to talk about visiting the station at Sarah Lawrence, um, WSLC. This is my 171st station tour, just in case, <laughs> in case you're new to Radio Survivor and are wondering, you know, what these tours are all about. I've been visiting radio stations um, since 2008. Is that right? Um, for a really long time. And, and, you know, there was a break because of the pandemic. So 2019, my tour stopped for a while, and then they resumed in fall 2022. And so now, after I got my taste in the fall, now I'm kind of raring to go again. So, so Jennifer, I'm going to yeah. interrupt you really quickly, oh, yeah. just just to sort of set this scene, because I, there may be people hearing this who are not acquainted with your yeah, passion yeah, yeah. for college radio and and these tours. Um, and so can you tell us very succinctly, why do you tour college radio stations? Yeah. Well, so I've been writing about college radio culture for a long time. I think it's really important. And I've had the experience of volunteering at a number of stations. And for me, I've learned a lot by um, uh, by being at different places that have you know different philosophies, different procedures. And when I started writing about college radio, part of what I wanted to do was expose people to the wide variety of college radio that was out there. And so that's that's one thing that the tours accomplish is kind of giving you a sense. And, and I'm also really interested in kind of the artifacts and the culture of stations themselves. I think community is such a huge part of radio, of, you know, of the kind of radio that we often talk about on Radio Survivor, like community radio, college radio, high school radio. Um, and so I like going into these buildings and taking tons of photos and interviewing people to get kind of the glimpse of what what this space is like and what the people are like and and sharing it so that, you know, as a reminder that college radio is still alive and there are a lot of interesting things that are going on within the walls of these stations. And also, I mean, it's fair to say, and, and I think you know this very much firsthand as a college radio scholar, uh, these stations often go woefully undocumented. Um, you know, I mean, they're, they're sort of, they are, on a campus might be considered, you know, a club or an organization. And, and that documentation effort can be very idiosyncratic, um, even though unlike a lot of clubs or, or organizations, you know, they, they have by the very nature of radio an off campus reach that it is often much greater, an audience much greater than they, than they have on campus. And so, I mean, certainly that's part of your motivation here, right? Is to, is to document the existence of these stations and along with, you know, the, the unique characteristics and such, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm very interested in history and preserving history and stories. And, you know, I've visited, I have visited radio stations that have disappeared. And so it makes me feel like this project is even more important because I'm capturing you know, yeah, like you said, I'm documenting and, and capturing stories about a station during a particular point in time, and it may not exist in the future. It's also part of my own research practice as I, you know, continue to develop this understanding of 
College Radio's trajectory and its deep history. So every time I visit a radio station, I'm asking a lot of questions about history and often, often, often not getting many answers when I visit the stations themselves and then doing my own ancillary research. So, you know, that was going on. Well, actually, this entire school year when I've been visiting radio stations, I've I, I seem to be doing a lot more archival research for mm. the stations I've visited because it's been um, so difficult to get firsthand information. You know, college radio is often run by students who are only on campus for four years. Um, and then with a the pandemic, a lot of institutional knowledge hasn't gotten passed down as much. So I think it's I think it's even more difficult maybe this year to ascertain, you know, sometimes even when did the station begin? You know, like the questions that seem relatively simple. So I've been doing a lot of of my own research in addition to the visits. And, and so with these posts on Radio Survivor where I have, you know, um, I'm writing about visiting the station. I have quotes from interviews, but I'm also including materials that I've found when I've been digging into archives, digging into um, deep <laughs> recesses of the internet, you know, for like the modern history, a lot of that is buried. So using things like the Wayback Machine on the Internet Archive, looking at old yearbooks. And and so, I don't know, it makes me feel really good that I'm helping to craft um, richer histories of some of these stations where a lot of the participants, you know, don't really know too much about the past. And, you know, and it's, it's no... Um, it's no critique on, on participants because often when you're running a radio station and you're a student, like there's so much work to do. So you don't always have the time to be researching the past. Um, the, the work of radio is the present. It's not, yes. it's not a backwards looking medium. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, it, it's fine. Um, and I, you know, I enter into a lot of these places with the understanding that sometimes I do know more about the history and that's okay. You know, I'm, a radio history nerd. So it's, it's as it should be. It's, it's also, it's, you know, it's also your place in time in culture where, where a 19 year old does not have to know as much about a, a person in the middle of their, of their ages of uh, the history of the place they're in. Yeah. Um, just a, an aside, and maybe we'll talk about this on another episode, but this spring, I was also presenting at the Radio Preservation Task Force about radio history, about college radio history. Which is an arm of the Library of Congress, preserving yeah. the sounds of radio throughout history. And um, and so a lot of these tours were also helping me uh, prepare for my presentation, for my talk at that event, um, which was great. So some of, some of the visits were kind of strategic, uh, visiting stations that were kind of historically interesting to me. Um, but back, back to Sarah Lawrence, Sarah Lawrence is kind of cool. Historically, it was founded, uh, the station there was founded when it was a women's college in the 1940s and women mm. founded the station and built it. And there's great lore, you know, doing the archival research where there are quotes about how these men from Harvard were basically <laughs> poo-pooing the project, like, <laughs> you know, how are you going to be able to build this radio station? And the women were like, you know, we're going to do it. And they did. Um, and it was, um, yeah. So a quote was, 
there was a quote in a 1947 um, publication saying that it was originally built because Harvard laughed at Sarah Lawrence and said Sarah Lawrence couldn't build or run a radio station. The students were far too busy polishing their nails and meeting under the clock. That was the quote, which is intriguing, too. Like, what happened uh, under the clock? <laughs> they socialized. They, they, they talked with one another and had a social life instead of taking their business-like studies as seriously as the men folk. Yeah. And, you know, they went on and they built the station. They aired poetry, music, comedy, um, a rebroadcast of a campus talk by Eleanor Roosevelt in 1951. So some pretty, pretty impressive. And, um, you know, this was part of a small number of 1940s college radio stations led by women. So that, that first station, WSLC, Uh, launched over 6.40 a.m. in 1946. And I'm not necessarily digging for an anecdote from you right now, Jennifer, but there must be women in radio in the 40s and 50s who got their start at this Sarah Lawrence radio station at a time when women did not have opportunities to be in radio the way that men did uh, in the 20th century. That's very exciting. Uh, We don't know those stories uh, today, but I bet you they're lurking out there in radio history. I know. And, you know, and this station is like so many with long histories like this where, you know, it sort of had an active beginning and then it kind of drifts away, um, seems to have drifted away, you know, within a few years by the early 50s. Mm. Um, and then and then in the archives, you know, you find reports of people trying to revive radio and bring it back. Um, so, it you know, a new station comes back by summer of 1999 um, over radiating cable (laughs) Um, and then through streaming audio. That's a um, specific broadcast technology for the yes radiating cable. What a neat. It's a, it's a cable they bury it in the ground in it, or, or you can have it up and above uh, broadcast. It's sort of like the transmitter antenna only it's just kind of everywhere. Um, but it's only you can only do that on a campus where where you can keep the signal within the bounds of the campus. Yeah, and where you control when you where you control all of the dirt surrounding your radio yeah. station. Otherwise, and 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 it's unlicensed, so you do yeah. so without a license. But you don't need one because you're you're bounding the the reach of the signal. It's on your property. Mm-hmm. Have fun. So it's hard it's hard to tell like how long it was actually on radiating cable, but. Um... It seems like it's been a streaming station since around 2000. It's a streaming station today. Mm-hmm. And when I visited in, in like March 2023, there were 64 weekly shows and 74 DJs. And, you know, this is a, a campus with like 1,700 students. So this, I think, is <laughs> very impressive. Um, and it's part of this kind of theme that I've talked about previously where I think with the pandemic restrictions easing on campuses, students are really active to congregate again and mm-hmm. just do stuff, including radio, including, you know, having campus shows. So, um, you know, when I toured, you know, I heard that COVID really crippled the station because people had to isolate um, and it was more difficult to have a sense of community at the station. And that is clearly all coming back. Um that WSLC also is really active in booking shows on campus. They were doing like a show a month. So bringing bands to campus and, you know, like hardcore stuff. Um, 
hyper pop, you know, variety of things. And, and they're playing around with like campus spaces to use. So they had a show in a dance studio where people had to take their shoes off. It was one example they shared with me. Um, so it was just really exciting. I saw flyers all over campus for some of the shows they did. Um, and even some flyers that were made out of fabric and using yarn and, and stitching, which I'd never seen before. And it was so Smart. cool. And it's a very, very arts, you know, art focused school. So I thought that was, um, that was unique. I hadn't seen that before. They also have part of this idea to kind of, um, re <laughs> reinvigorate the idea of community at the radio station. They have a log book where, People handwrite their uh, playlists and also do drawings and write notes back and forth. And I saw this at another station um, that I visited. Uh, and, it, you know, it takes me back to my days during doing college radio in the 80s when we had these sorts of books where we would handwrite notes back and forth. So I love that idea, and I kind of want to bring it back to my station, actually. I'm going to steal that idea. Um, another thing, you know... WSLC is actively trying to expand its library of physical music, which is something that you might not always hear about with undergraduate-focused college radio stations. So they revamped all their equipment so they can play vinyl again, and they can also play cassettes and CDs and digital music. Um, they had LPs on a shelf, including some labels like disco <laughs> and 80s synth pop. Um and, you know, the, the schedule has a wide variety of genres. So it was, it was super inspiring to me, you know, just to see, um, again, another college radio station that seems re-energized um, after kind of this period of, uh, of quiet, you know, during the pandemic. And um, so, yeah, that was, that was Sarah Lawrence. Um, Another interesting note is that the person who toured me around uh, was the operations man manager, Henry Birch, and he had already been a radio veteran when he got on campus. So he had already done community radio in Nashville um, at um, WXNA while he was still in high school. Cool. And is that a high school radio station or just a community radio station? In his no, town? it's a community radio station. Cute. So a community radio station where high school students participate yeah. in, in making radio in Nashville, yeah. Tennessee. Yeah. Uh, a music town. So was, uh, I imagine it was a music station. I'm making yeah, I, stuff up here. No, I think it's, it's a, a It's a freeform station and it's, uh, you know, it is it is a low power FM. Yeah. Uh, okay. Went on the air in 2016. So it's part of that 2013 window. Neat. WXNA in Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah. All right. Are you guys ready for another tour? Yes. Jennifer <laughs> Jennifer Waits does not just tour one radio station at a time in this life. Well, where you went to Brown University. Yeah. So we're we'll talk about two stations in in full, and then maybe I'll give you a little tidbits about a couple more, just to, as to not overwhelm you you all. Um, so but, we're traveling from Yonkers, New York. To, yes. to Providence, Rhode Island, right? Yes. So still staying in, in that Northeast corridor there. Yes. And we're not going in chronological order. We're just, sure. you know, <laughs> we're just kind of freeforming it here. Yeah. Um, so Brown University, I mean, this is a school I've been wanting to visit a while uh, because they have, they hold an interesting place in college radio history. I visited BSR, which stands for Brown Student and Community Radio, Um 
so right now it's or these days it's an online and LPFM station. Um, and this is a story that we followed when we were following the LPFM movement. Um, I talked a lot about Brown Student Radio. So they're broadcasting with call letters WBRULP. And what's interesting is that um, it's this, this station is the descendant of likely, here I am with a first claim, with likely the first AM carrier current college radio station in the United States, the Brown Network. So carrier current radio, this campus-only way of broadcasting, uh, was pioneered by students at Brown in 1936. So students were broadcasting from their dorm rooms and ended up kind of creating this whole movement of carrier current. Students at Brown ended up forming the Intercollegiate Broadcasting System, which was a college radio organization that helped to evangelize the idea of doing carrier current radio. And and again, carrier current is a unique way of transmitting a radio signal you know in in the 21st century we assume all radio stations are towers on top of buildings or on top of mountains but uh how does carrier current differ from leaky cable paul paul yeah this is a paul question (laughs) well um so carrier current is in the electrical wiring right of 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 the buildings or or the Um, even the the metal pipes Sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes, but pretty strictly speaking, it's really when it's when it is on the broadcasting through the electrical system. So it has to be an AM signal that will only work with AM radio, and so it radiates, you know, uh, several, you know, dozens of feet, dozens of yards from from any uh, of the AM uh, radio. Uh, I'm sorry, any of the AC current outlets or wiring. Yeah, so it's um, it's just instead of a radio tower, you have all of the electrical wiring in the building or campus is the is broadcasting the signal. It's carrier it's carrying the current. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and Jennifer, you're saying that Brown University way back in the day may have the um may have uh started this work. Yeah, uh, I mean there's carrier. there's no one else saying that they I mean it's I probably I probably can make this first claim because nobody else is making this claim. But yeah, and they they called it gas pipe networks because mm-hmm. they were also using that infrastructure. Um, so so yeah, with all that deep history at Brown, I always wanted to visit Brown, um, and it's it's super confusing because Brown ended up having two different radio stations. So I don't want people to get super confused by all that um adding to the confusion the call letters of brown student and community radio are now the same call letters that their rival station was holding so <laughs> it's it's all this kind of weird twists and turns um trouble for a historian but not for our listeners i, I know so um so i visited bsr it's in um you know, this really cool old campus building um, uh, up on, you know, a high floor. Um, the station has some artifacts. Like there was a, there was an old uh, mixing console that looked like it was, you know, from decades ago. Um, there were old photos that were pulled out for me from 
the early days of radio at Brown. So that was really cool. Um, I also learned that, so there's a professor, um, Susan Smolian at Brown, who does a radio history class. And mm. during her week focused on college radio, they met at the radio station, which I thought was amazing. So the student tore me around. One of the student managers, Josie Bleakley, actually took that class. So kind of recounted what it was like to be taking a college radio history class and then talking about college radio history while sitting in the Brown station, which, as I laid out for you, has an important place in the history of college radio. And so um, as part of a class project, the station manager created an update about the more recent years of the station, interviewing some of the people who've been involved through covid um, which I which I thought was really great, especially since I've been out touring college radio stations, and I feel like this is an important period of time we need to document because you know stations went through such challenges, and and now there's uh, you know kind of this energy and excitement. 2020 was really quite a year. I'm reading a book about 2020, and it, it it's all coming flooding back to me just how much we all lived through in the United States and the world. So any document of 2020, no matter what people were doing, is an important historical document. And a document of 2020, uh, people working in a radio station, it's, yeah. it's, it's going to last. The interest in that is going to last. And, you know, like when we, when we did our episode back in December, I talked about um, University at Albany at their station they talked about how they really made a change in the culture of the radio station in a positive way to make it more inclusive and inviting right. after COVID. And Cause that's the flip side of, of the COVID 2020 and the elections 2020 was the black lives matter, social justice, 2020, these, all these things were in the mix for, for all of us living through that time. Exactly. And you add, so you add that social justice element to kind of the stereotypes about college radio being clicky or gatekeepery. And, you know, even, um, you know, when I was visiting the station at Brown, uh, the station manager there was talking about arriving in 2019 and feeling out of her depth mm. as far as music. And a lot of people feel that way, like, oh, my God, am I cool enough? And, um, and, and she was saying that the station is just much less exclusive now since they're rebuilding the community and that it feels like more of a station for all the students. So it's it's just so encouraging to hear kind of these stories time and time again when I'm visiting stations this year. And uh, yeah, it's great to hear. So I wanted to, uh, I don't know if you're aware of a film from 1990 called a matter of degrees. I am. Yes, because it, it fictionally takes place in Providence, Rhode Island and surrounds a college radio station that's being sold off. Oh wow! To commercial entities, uh, you know it's it's a very Gen time. X. It's a very Gen X uh, slacker culture kind of movie. I don't think it was in wide release. I only learned about it like months ago and happened to watch it. Someone is. It's only on a VHS, so someone has digitized and uploaded it to YouTube. Oh, great! But I, given that time then, and given this history I'm learning of WBRU, there seems to be some uh, some similarities, shall we say, uh, given the timing and 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 the uh, of the movie and this, uh, which is of course fictionalized. They don't they don't formally set it at Brown, 
but it is the movie is shot in Providence and, you know, uh, shot at, a, you know, and clearly meant to, it's clearly meant to be Brown, although they never actually say that or, and, you know, and it's interesting because even like John Doe from X, the band X is in it. Uh, JFK Jr. is in it. The B-52s are in it. <laughs> so it's also trying to capture uh, some of the zeitgeist of alternative music right around yeah. 1990. That's why you, that's why you name checked Slacker. Cause much like the film sounds like it's like, you know, all, almost a documentary it's capturing so much of what's right. it's clearly uh i mean it's it's much i mean it's clearly not it it, it it's not um it's not right. quite so, so no, cinema if, verite like but if bands if bands if bands that are real are in the film then then it's it's really capturing a time and a place right I, yeah thanks for the reminder about about that i uh, a matter of degrees in it so in a very yeah, I have a very interesting anecdote about that. When I was visiting um, a station in Kentucky, now I'm spacing on the call letters. I was visiting a college radio station in Lexington, Kentucky, and I had Sharon Scott with me, um, who is the manager of WXOX in Louisville, Kentucky. While we were in that station, we saw a sticker on the wall for WXOX. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And we're like, what? Like, that's her station. And it was a s- promotional sticker for that movie, A Matter of Degrees. Neat. And we're like, what? Oh, that's right. They used the same. That's right. I'd forgotten about that. I know. We're like, what is what is going on? And so I think Sharon actually tracked down a VHS and watched that, but I've never seen it. Ooh, um, I like, I don't want to watch it on YouTube. I want. I want to find a friend with a VHS copy. Well, I know, I know the, the the one video store in Portland has a copy on VHS. <laughs> Good, just, that's my in. <laughs> it's a nonprofit uh, video store, as it is. Um, yeah, well, and I that's another I, I'm story. Going to speak uh, from what I remember after doing some research, but I for, I've not can no longer say for certain. I'm pretty sure that the the writer director. It's sort of one of those like first effort passion projects of a young writer director. I'm reasonably sure he he went went to Brown or, or spent quite a bit of time in Providence. Like it comes from that that place, if you will. So I definitely I I definitely recommend watching it, whether yeah. on YouTube or if you can track down a VHS copy. Yeah, um, it's and, very and- of its time. It is occasionally a little cringe, um, you know, a little sure. little over earnest, even even though it's supposedly a, a comedy. Um, you know, and, and, you know, it's dramedy, I guess, if you will. And of course the over earnestness of trying to save the college radio station, you know, from being taken over by corporate in- interests. I love it. it. Sounds like a good future episode of radio survivor though, to dig in a little more to this film. A matter so the, the, of and I'll tell you why I know about it is that, uh, my niece, uh, went to film school at UCLA and uh, got her MFA there. And one of her mentors, whom she stays in touch with, was the editor of this film. Oh, there's an in. There's an in. So I there is it. an in. Yeah, that's how I found out. It is, is I was just looking the guy up, and I'm like, wait, this is, you know, as you do, you're going through the IMDb, and, and you say, well, wait, wait, that sounds like a movie I would have watched. Why have I never heard of it? It was right around the time I would have watched it. I was in college radio. I mean, it's right around the same time that um, Pump Up the Volume. Right about pirate radio with uh, Christian right. Slater was in wide release, a much more well-known uh, uh, by, movie by about of sort of rebellious age. radio. Yeah. <laughs> well, we don't have anyway. too many. We don't have too many movies about college radio, so it's no. It's always exciting to hear about them, and 
you know, that is just another indication of how obscure they are. So we went on that delightful tangent about the indie film A Matter of Degrees from 1990 because it was uh, in all likelihood related to Brown University's college radio culture. And Jennifer, you were on a radio tour of of Brown. Uh, what else? What else did you see? So I, I alluded to there being this very kind of complicated um, situation radio wise there. So, you know. 1936, that's when Carrier Current Radio starts at Brown University. And um, by, so they're doing Carrier Current for years and years. By 1966, they get an FM signal and it's a commercial station uh, that they're licensed. And that's WBRU FM. And the Carrier Current station prior to that was operating as a commercial station too. And that was, um, Oh, interesting. Yeah. They, so the intercollegiate broadcasting system, this college radio organization that helped evangelize Carrier Current Radio starting in the late 1930s, you know, they would, a lot of the stations would band together to collectively get advertising for their stations. That was one thing that they would do. Carrier Current stations, you know, were not, licensed by the FCC. So a lot of them were commercial. And so some of them went on to get commercial FM licenses later, including this station, WBRU FM. So, so they get this FM license in 1966 and then WBRU AM continues on as a carrier current station. So then at this point, you've got two stations operating at Brown. And so the, the carrier current station at some point, becomes more focused on less commercial music. So they kind of differentiate, differentiate, yeah. they're and differentiated, again, you know, as far as programming. These because two carrier stations. Because carrier current is campus only. Yeah. Small. Yeah. And then eventually this um, station on campus, WBRUAM, um, it's able to make a deal with a local high school station to broadcast, use some time over FM. And that's when it rebrands itself as Brown Student Radio. Wow, another little tidbit that makes Radio Survivor's ears perk up. That like yeah. that a college station got on the airwaves of a high school station to get a to get a larger broadcast signal. Yeah, that happened in Portland too. Neat. Uh, Portland State University at one point had a similar sort of arrangement. Exactly. Yeah. So backwards. So this... Backwards to what you might presume is possible. So it started out as like broadcasting sports over the the high school station, and then it ended up um, being you know a lot of programming, a lot more programming on weeknights, starting in 1997, and then in 2011, Brown Student Radio Brown Student Radio lost that lease of airtime um, over FM, so it continued as an internet only station. And then, so there's just so many twists and turns. Yeah, that, I just want to add again that, like, the reason why this is all exciting to us because each twist and turn represents another, like, generation or another group of people who are who are making radio in a specific way for their specific communities in their time. And, you know, this history of Brown radio and all of the twists, it, it takes place over decades. And so it's, it's exciting, even if we can't relate all of the details or yeah. even fully comprehend them anymore. So I'm talking about, you know, I visited Brown Student Radio. I'm talking right now about Brown Student Radio, which had a lease over FM. And so this is the more, you know, less commercially oriented 
you know, it's it, it's over it's broadcasting over non-commercial station. It's airing less commercial programming. Um, so now it's back internet only. Um, and then the low power FM opportunity arises, and they took advantage of it and applied for a license. Um, so that's going on. Meanwhile, we still have this commercial FM station at Brown. That's WBRU FM. And meanwhile, they end up selling their right. 95.5 FM license to a Christian broadcasting group in 2017. So you've got like the, um, the more underground station who's like, okay, we're going to get a low power FM signal. And then you've got the commercial station that is like, okay, we're going to give up our we're cashing in. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then it gets weirder to me. What so in 28, in 2018, Brown student radio returns to the FM airwaves with their low power FM license. Um, and, and they're using the call letters WBRULP. So it's like, even though they've been like Brown student radio in recent years and WBRU has been associated with their commercial sibling, now they're WBRULP, um, and then the WBRU-FM commercial station is off terrestrial radio, but some of that station's programming comes to the low-power FM station. So they had this, this show, um, most notably 360 Degrees Experience in Sound, that was an R&B, hip-hop, Afrobeats, reggae program that was really beloved by the community and people wanted to hear it over the terrestrial airwaves. So when this mm. license was sold off by, you know, the people who ran um, WBRU-FM, they brought this show to their sister station, LPFM signal. So, I, and that, it's really exciting too, it's, Jennifer, because it's, it's a twisted, complex story to tell. But if we understand it, which we might not, fully understand it on today's episode uh, yeah it really does represent the twists and turns that 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 radio culture has gone through over the decades of you know the the corporate interests and the commercial interests and the community radio and college radio and all the different technologies and styles available to people who are excited about radio like it, it's all there at Brown University with these two stations sort of uh, competing and flowing and merging. Well, maybe not even competing. You know? Right. Yeah, right. I mean, so my understanding is WBRU-FM, the commercial station, was like a commercial modern rock station. Um, it had been a progressive rock station. So therefore playing something that would be more strictly formatted, I'm guessing. Yeah. Right. So having a rotation sounding like commercial radio, which is, which is a format that exists at some other stations, uh, in other colleges, university of Illinois has uh, WPGU, which is a modern rock formatted commercial radio station run by students owned by a student run right. organization. Um, and it's worth and noting that in the seventies commercial radio like that was actually actually exciting to listen to fun as opposed to the nineties where commercial radio starts to, uh, starts to take well, a cultural I mean, nose guy. Yeah. I mean, yes and no. I mean, there's some people who think that FM commercial ratio, there were some FM commercial radio stations in nineties that were, uh, thought to be pretty exciting as yeah. music tastes were changing. So I don't know if we can make such a sweeping generalization. Um, but right. But I know that, you know, say at, at when I was at university of Illinois, there were certainly students who said, you know, I wish there were like a real college radio station. They would say, real, um, yeah. meaning 
not strictly formatted, more freeform. I can get a specialty show, things like that. And so I can kind of understand how you might have the students who want to do something that's far more freeform saying, okay, fine, I can work on the, the carrier current AM station. And those who have are more willing to or more interested in getting having a bigger audience probably as well as maybe having a career in broadcasting, working for the commercial FM. Um, you know, yeah. but I, I suspect at some point someone, you know, was like, well, why do we need to run a commercial FM radio station if it's not sort of, you know, it serves sort of a different kind of purpose maybe than they felt like the um, uh, an LPFM eventually would, would serve. Yeah. And, and it was interesting to me, too, that, I mean, this shows kind of why FM is still important to a lot of communities, uh, you know, including us, um, that there was a radio show on WBRU FM that the listeners really wanted to be on FM. Like it, it right. wasn't okay for them to just transition that to a streaming show. They, and so that was so important that they brought it to their LPFM sister station. So that I think is also kind of fascinating. It, I'm even more convinced that this movie, a matter of degrees is about to be beyond you <laughs> now understanding sort of the twists and turns yeah. and noting that it was, it sort of changed formats in sort of the late eighties. Um, I'm, I'm more and more convinced that, that, it, you know, it's, 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 uh, uh, it's subtweeting the uh, <laughs> that radio If that's station. still a word anymore. <laughs> uh, I can't, I can't. Jennifer, we have, we have about seven minutes uh, for you to tell us a little bit about your visit to Pratt. Yes. So, um, all right. Now we're traveling back to Brooklyn to Pratt Institute. Uh, WPIR is the station there. And um, I visited after they had really just moved to a new location on campus, had a really shaky few years during COVID, like a lot of stations. Um, And so I visited in in this new space that they're in down the hall from their old space. And this is... One of the many stations from my travels recently where I am sort of vexed by trying to determine the history. So I've been doing a lot of research. I have not written up this tour yet. Um, So some of this is sketchy, but it was originally an AM carrier current station dating back to 1966. Um, They later experimented with FM and there are all these rumors from like around 1991 that they had done some pirate broadcasting um, and then had a setback and drama. Um, and I'm, I'm going to get more information about this. I did serious sleuthing and I tracked down like somebody central to this whole controversy. And That's exciting like, because yeah. <laughs> I mean, pirate, as we've talked about on Radio Survivor, uh, dozens upon dozens of times, pirate radio has a really uh, important place in the history of American radio and radio around the world where we like knowing about, but it also is a um, controversial and sometimes illegal uh, way to, to make radio. And so the history would be by, uh, you know, necessity buried because somebody who engaged in pie radio might not want to well brag about it in certain and, and sometimes someone is not a pirate on purpose. That's what yeah. I was right? just going to they're say. Under, they're, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're attempting to follow the rules or they have a vague understanding they're of the rules. They're making radio. Because the rules for unlicensed broadcasting are very strict right. and very easy to exceed. 
Like it is trivial in many cases, especially on the FM dial, even using a transmitter, which you are right. believe is legal to use we're all, to we're accidentally all probably, exceed those limits. We're all probably I, being pirates as we drive around in our cars with these uh, with the with the radio, with the Bluetooth radios that we got from Amazon are probably overpowered as far as the legal are. limit goes. All yeah. the ones that broadcast straight into my car, I'm sure, from, so this, from the neighboring cars. I mean, this to me, it's more like there's a kernel where people had all this like, oh, it was pirate and the person got kicked out of school. Like, there's just all this like rumor and innuendo. At Pratt. Yeah. And um, and so I'm researching that, but I'm, I'm suspecting that a lot of that is really not true, that it yeah, was it was more, yeah, more like a misunderstanding. Um so, so yeah, well, you know, stay tuned. You'll hear more later. Um, but it's, but I think like this, um, this allure maybe of this pirate idea was exciting to them. So the, there, you see that imagery in some of the station's branding where they've got like a pirate flag. Um, mm-hmm. and I don't even know if they ever actually were pirate, for example, you know, but it's interesting. Um, so then I don't know, around like, 2001 between 2001 and 2004 the station really becomes a streaming station and students at the station you know like i've been saying like the history is super murky to them you know they've just really been scrambling just to get the station up and running again because you know they were shut down during covid um and i met with a pretty large group of board members for the station and again like just so cool to see all the excitement and they were all sophomores which i think is great too that when you're getting a station up and running again have a lot of younger students who will be with the station for a longer period of time and uh, it also means they don't have institutional knowledge so um apparently uh, another board member was a senior so that was helpful to have um some of that institutional knowledge and then knowledge from their advisor and they also uh, told me that they were learning about some of the station's history by looking at old posts on Instagram. So like, this is an example of how you sometimes uncover history. Uh, you know, it's, it's so they sometimes... mean like eight years ago or even less, or even you know, three. Yeah. Um, Aww. even less. So archive have... that stuff while you can folks. <laughs> Cause I know, I know. And, and they have screenshots, like a, a really, um, really amazingly designed Tumblr site that is frozen in time um, from like right around the time of the pandemic that is just so cool in, in the way that a lot of younger students um, kind of are, are playing around with designs where you think like, is that a really old site or is that a new site that just looks really old in a cool way? Um, and so that the Tumblr shows the 2020 schedule with 53 shows and at the time, they had shows hosted by students and faculty and staff and alums. Um, and it, it's just, it, it's so strange. Like you probably, probably everybody listening had this experience where during the pandemic, you might be taking public transit and you see these posters for theater performances in March 2020, you know, and, and this frozen spring 2020 schedule that was yeah. packed with 53 shows on Tumblr just made me think about mm. that you know like wow that was that was a moment and then it just ended so that that's a little bit about about pratt i mean we'll we'll learn more after i 
after I talk to the alleged pirate and, oh, and find out more about what happened when they were trying to expand their range in the 1990s. That's great. Well, Jennifer, uh, thanks for sharing with us about Pratt. And you have one more school in New York City to talk about that we're going to have on the podcast version of today's show. So if you're listening on the radio, check out the podcast online at radiosurvivor.com or wherever you get your podcasts. But in the next uh, 10 minutes that we have on the radio show, Paul uh, wants to celebrate with all of the listeners and us a very important podcast anniversary that, that we almost missed. We didn't even see it coming. July 9th is the 20th birthday of podcasting. And where we mark that date, going back to July 9, 2003, is the date that what is often recognized as the first podcast was recorded. And that uh, particular podcast turned into something which still exists. It's called uh, Radio Open Source, um, hosted by Christopher Lydon. But the first recording as a podcast happened on that date between Christopher Lydon and, and a guy named Dave Weiner. Dave Weiner is the ostensible inventor of RSS, really yeah, simple gonna, syndication. I was going to say, Paul, in 2003, when somebody makes a radio show and puts it on the Internet, how, how do we know if it's a podcast or not? It's a podcast because it was using this technology RSS, which is a uh, which is a type of file that um, summarizes a website um, in a way that someone can subscribe to it, and so that you can use this. This is it's a technology that still happens in the background, mostly happens for podcasts. Yeah. So with podcasts, we call it a feed, and it is this file, an RSS feed, as it's called, and that it's contains. Imp- all the information about the podcast and pointers to an MP3 audio file. And it's useful which, to sort of remind younger listeners, perhaps, or people who weren't paying attention to what the internet was like 20 years ago. But this this RSS technology, which allows people su- to subscribe to things, really was the beginning of that idea on the internet. It was before Facebook and before all the social media and before all the other ways that you could click subscribe yeah. and keep getting something on a regular basis that you were interested in, this was the first of that thing. And and then Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff comes after podcasts and blogs started using this technology to, 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 to right. serve their content to people on a regular basis. So that you didn't have to just go check a bunch of websites constantly. And the idea was that you would use a piece of software, then called a podcatcher, podcatcher. which would automatically download your podcast to your computer. Uh, We didn't have internet-capable mobile phones, by and large. We did not have uh, mobile data, by and large. So you you would do this to your computer. You got it onto your computer, and you either listened to it on your computer, or maybe you put it onto another device to, that you could walk away from your computer with. Well, like an iPod, yeah. which is where the name podcast came from, because it was clear that many users were connecting their iPods to their computers. And right. then by 2005, Apple added this capacity automat- uh, officially to, to iTunes so that <laughs> it was built in to uh, the infrastructure behind your iPod. I can't believe so- I'm at the point where I feel like I'm. it's necessary for me to stop your yes. flow, Paul, just to make sure listeners know that iPods first were only for listening to music on offline. Right. 
It was your Offline. MP3 player. Offline, had no internet on them. And it was no. a... It was an innovation to think like I want to listen to some talk radio on this device while I'm walking around. Yeah, so car. twenty twenty years later, and and this is thanks <laughs> to James Cridlin at PodNews, PodNews.net. We've had James on the show before, friend of the yeah. show, um, who who compiled a little timeline and history uh, for the edition uh, published on July seventh ahead of the weekend of July 9. Um, but now there's about 4.1 million podcasts out there. Uh, 42% of Americans listen to a podcast at least monthly. And uh, peop- right now that industry makes about $1.8 billion. Yeah, as founded <laughs> in, uh, in 2003. And I, and I was recollecting today, I hand-coded my own podcast feed somewhere towards the end of 2003 it's lost to time it didn't get picked up by the internet archive and through many changes of web hosts it no longer exists but for my podcast that ran uh at that time my feed starts at january 2004 it's all still there uh online um catchable by any podcatcher, which includes, say, iTunes, uh, you know, Apple Podcasts and such. You mean out still there to this in day? The world. It's still there. It's still hosted. That's and so you neat. could still get it. Yeah, I've worked to try and keep it up and running. Because uh, uh, I, I can. <laughs> I wonder. It, is that you know, Media Geek, Paul? That's Media Geek, yeah. yeah. Radio.mediageek.net. You can see a great web design in circa 2007. Totally unupdated. Uh, just to keep the security updates going on. Uh, the feed is there. Um, I think some files are broken because various things have happened over the years, yeah. and I've been slowly fixing them when I have the time. But certainly 2004 is still there. And, and so if you want to revel in my whatever in my community radio talk show seat of your pants podcast you may um jennifer you were a guest towards the end of the run there that's right in in, in 2008 or 2009 um but anyway i think it's worth celebrating the 20th anniversary of of you know what is you know, what was then I saw as radio on demand, why I was excited about it when I learned about it um, in 2023, in 2003, I'm sorry, was I thought to myself, wow, okay, here's an easier way to make my radio show and other people's radio shows accessible on the internet. Because at the time, again, lost to, for, for many people, is the fact that you would listen to like a radio show using a technology called Real Player. Or there would be QuickTime or Windows Media Player, all these proprietary formats that would have to be embedded on a website. And yeah. so you could go and listen to a file on a website. But they made it it made it was made relatively difficult to take that file with you. <laughs> yeah. And even that technology that you're referring to was was a revelation at the time because before that it was download something slowly and, uh, you know, hit or miss whether or not In terrible you, quality. <laughs> yeah. Whether or not you liked it. Um, Paul, we have we have about three ish more minutes to talk on the radio show. And I think we should continue our conversation about podcasting on our podcast. But in the next three minutes, like, what do you I want? I just want you to encapsulate what you think. This 20 year history of podcasts has meant. Well, what I is, think it's meant. What are podcasts? <laughs> I, I think. Well, I think that what it has done is it revitalized interest in talk 
sound programming, talk radio, pull it out of basically the, 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 the doldrums it was in where basically talk programming was one of three genres, right wing talk, um, sports or something NPR style public radio. And often people think of public radio now being quite dynamic and it was then, but perhaps the show people most associated with podcasting for a long time was this American life. And what people don't think don't really realize is this American life was an outlier. This American life was a program that many, many, many public radio program directors wouldn't take because it didn't sound like public radio. Yeah, it was because weird. It didn't sound professional. There was all these non-professional voices who they left in the ums and the stammers and the more naturalistic kind of speaking. Um, it took a long time before that show became popular and probably came popular because of podcasting because it was one of the first public radio programs to embrace podcasting as a distribution method. And so I think if there's a really long-standing legacy for this, it is the revitalization of interest in talk programming. Um and on top of, you know, truly democratizing the ability to produce and distribute it. Again, this comes before there's a YouTube, way before there's a TikTok. Yeah. When you know, and and it's not as if podcasting was simple to do. Um, in 2003, but enough people could figure it out. And in fact, the precursor to Twitter was <laughs> the company before it was a company called Odeo, which was making a web-based podcast creation and distribution platform, sort of like YouTube before YouTube, but for audio. I mean, I would say I would add in the 30 seconds, and I guess you get to disagree with me in the podcast feed, not on the radio, that it would appear as though the last 20 years of the history of sound was more interesting and exciting than the 20 years that preceded it. Like we, we had a, we had a faster acceleration of growth in the culture of talking into microphones in the, from 20, 2003 to, to now because of the availability of, 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 of audio programming on the internet than we did in the 20 years previously when it, when we didn't have, um, this much variety and this much freedom. Yeah. I guess we can take now, that point and yeah, run with it. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, and that's obviously uh, I'm starting a fight, <laughs> which I love to do. And we have plenty of time now to fight about it uh, because we're, we're podcasting and the, the radio program has ended. So, yeah, I mean, that's my, my opinion. Like I, I, I came to this opinion, Paul, uh, based on the revelation or the realization that you take Mark Marin and uh, and Sam Cedar, who were given the opportunity to work together on a morning radio show on the doomed liberal talk network, Air America. Uh, it didn't work out. It was financially a disaster. They both lost their jobs and both of them sort of t with their tail between their legs and their mood, uh, their their professional sense of themselves completely destroyed sort of turn meekly to the internet to keep creating the kind of content that they like and both of them but mark Marin even more so um sort of come out of this radio cultural disaster to reinvent the whole notion of talk on the internet and do better right and define themselves culturally you know mark Marin is not going to be remembered for getting fired from Air America, he's going to be remembered for his uh, podcast that that you know really changed the genre that started 
from 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 a dark place in his life and it turned turned his career around and and you know renewed renewed uh renewed how he spoke into microphones and that's just one example of uh where podcasting has has come from and where it's going yeah i mean i i agree i mean i i mostly agree with you actually because at least when it comes to to radio you know the the you know the concentration the, the corporate concentration the deregulation that happened in the 80s and 90s you know basically took you know a lot of sort of talk that did not fit into conservative talk sports talk or public radio which was its own you know set of you know it, it, it's its own dial so to speak um most it started to fall away i mean there was actually talk stations had more um liberal or more sort of you know just not even particularly uh political talk for a lot of years into the 80s well into the 90s um you know but ultimately i think that the way that if i think of myself as somebody you know gen gen x went to college in 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 the early 90s there you know my fellow students by and large weren't particularly interested in in talk programming on the radio right. I was, or college I was gonna... radio folks the the folks who did talking did you know they either wanted to emulate howard stern right in a particular way which is frankly hard to do well and very easy to do poorly or you know other sorts of morning shock jocks and i think that's an a, a genre of talk that i'm that i I didn't mean to leave out because I think that that right. was probably by year 2000. That was your other sort of version of talk radio was morning talk radio. So whether, you know, which could be shock jocks or just the more anodyne sort of guy and a gal and a sports person. That's the a good point. Person. Like from, from the seventies, eighties, the eighties, nineties and 2000, the, the 20 years that preceded podcasting, you could make an argument that it was, there was a interesting development in that, Howard Stern style of radio, uh, and right, then, which but begets then he fits the in. Bubba the Love Sponge yeah. and Bob and Tom and, right. and, and Opie and Anthony and a, a you very know, troubling and, and, little well, well it had, yeah, there's a lot of I think there's a lot of you got you got to put yeah, Don Imus in there and and he didn't uh, and Don Imus who was really a pioneer ahead of ahead of Stern right yeah yeah and, there and, is and he deserves sort of, to be canceled as much as he got canceled that right I mean because a lot my yeah. opinion <laughs> yeah no I, I mean Right. No, a lot of the content was racist and misogynist and, you know, very, very problematic, uh, especially as we look back at this time. Um, but, you know, podcasting, you know, in, in, in especially in the last 10, you know, 10 to 12 years, you know, brought, you know, opened the door for a lot of folks to experiment with talk programming yeah. um, with very with a very low barrier to entry and with very little to lose. Right. I mean, I think that's the other part of it. It's expensive to be on the radio by and large. Yeah. Um, it's difficult to get on the radio and in, in a commercial or public radio, if someone puts you on the radio to run your own program, they're investing quite a bit in you and they're expecting results. Right. So the opportunity to experiment with take new risks. forms yeah, it's pretty rare. As I mentioned, the, This American Life was a new form, you know, started in like 1995, I believe, a new way of doing um, sort of documentary radio, public radio, and took a long time before 
it was I on listened. a plurality of public radio stations around the country because it sounded so different and so risky. In 1990, no, it must have been in 1999, 1999-2000, 2001, I listened to so many episodes of This American Life streaming over the internet because that was just such a magical, like, for me as a person who liked that show but could sometimes not get my act together on the weekends in the morning to hear it, this is a world-changing technology that I can click and listen when I choose. It's and a they embraced deal. it early. And, yeah. and, and they had a great website. Of, and that sort of on-demand listening was very controversial in public radio at the time. Yeah, it's, it's goring local, the ox, right? It's, right. Uh, local public radio stations were scared of it to say that, that well, people just live on the listen on the internet and just won't listen to our radio stations anymore. Um, as much as public radio is often thought of now as being sort of, um, early on podcasting. And in many cases it was, um, it's only little corners of public radio that, that, that's so embraced it. And eventually NPR, the large, uh, network, uh, you know, the largest network in, in the U S um, because there was a lot of resistance and a lot of fear of, of that actually at individual stations, um, and, and which continue, you know, and, and, and there's a similar attitude, I think, in community radio and, and similar attitude even around Internet streaming, which which, which is sort of becoming right. more prominent in the same time period, that that's going to steal away people from listening to our air signal and ultimately squeeze the life out of us. Right. And we've talked about this on the show a lot where I I wonder if one of the reasons why professionals in radio are scared of competition from the Internet is because of decades long patterns where they face a kind of austerity in the industry that wasn't necessarily uh, due to their own lack of uh, cultural relevancy or even a, the business model being a functioning and good thing but but just because of what was happening in other market forces creating pressure on radio stations to shrink what they're offering to fire people uh, i yeah. just i just put into the show notes uh, a link uh, to a, a video that just came out recently. Uh, a, just somebody else, someone out in the universe, uh, someone, a, a content creator who did a short documentary about the uh, 1990 uh, something uh, telecommunications act that we talk about, you know, once, once a year here on radio survivor, we blather on about the telecommunications act, which changed, changed radio in the nineties and, and uh, uh, might've uh, been the reason why radio was terrible in the year t in the early 2000s uh and and why podcasts had so much room to uh to spread well, its but it wings. was slow it's interesting you say you had so much room. it took a long time yeah before anything close to even a, a large minority of people in the u.s were aware of or listened to a podcast. I think, I think it was just. I think I, I overemphasized its importance because for me, as someone say in my twenties and thirties, um, radio. I remember vaguely how cool radio was when I was growing up, and I could very clearly, uh, um, you know, speak my mind about how much it sucked in the current era when I was living through it, how I couldn't find what I was looking for on the radio dial, but I imagined, I think I could in the eighties. And I think I remember radio in the nineties being a lot better than, and then to get excited about internet content because it was fulfilling this need for me, not necessarily for music 
at that time. Well, that's, a, that's Napster. That's a different story. Um, but I was excited about Napster, too, at, in the early 2000s, just because of this, because uh, so much was missing from from what was available for me to listen to. Yeah, yeah, I know. To, I know what you to, mean. That it, it to, took to wrap years it up, to get to this place. Yeah, it really did. But to wrap it up, I mean, the other thing I want to call out about podcasting that's very unique is that podcasting is not podcast dot com. It's not yeah. podcasting dot com. No one owns it. Yeah, nobody owns podcasting, right? So if we think about online video, we mostly think of. YouTube, TikTok, or Instagram at this point in time. There are other ways you could put online video onto the internet. Twitch, right? Your Twitch is there. You know, Twitch. Sorry. Yeah, as well, Twitch. Um, you know, but mostly you do so using one of these mechanisms, which are fully and wholly owned and fully and wholly controlled, right? Yeah. Um, you do so at, you know, at, at their mercy by and large. Yeah. And that's, um, that's true both for audiences and for creators that, right. that both are captured by these large tech companies that control this medium. And it's, uh, you know, sometimes they loosen what's available and you feel a freedom and a hope and an excitement about what you can watch and listen to and create. And sometimes they clamp back down. Well, there's a lot of forces and, and, you know, for, and, and for most people in the, in whether you are a creator or a consumer, it's free. Somebody else is paying all the very expensive bills. Yeah. With podcasting, by comparison, we are still relying on this 20-year-old technology, the RSS feed. So anyone who can create an MP3 file and get it on the web with an RSS feed, and you can do that using free tools. You can do this using paid tools. You can choose them. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of different podcast hosts, along with you know, website builders like Squarespace, yeah. that'll do it for you as well. You can even hand code it if you're Or you can hand code it yourself if you're so inclined. Yeah. And you submit that feed address to Apple or Spotify um, or TuneIn, or there's R, uh, there's now an open source one, at, I believe at rss.com, which Good. is is an open, open source uh, community effort to index uh, the podcast index. That's useful um, since sometimes these other companies lose interest. In or doing the yeah, work, I mean, or, or the yeah, they, or the exactly, and so as long as you keep that feed up, it exists for somebody somewhere, and then there's just directories in, to right. get to it. Well, and then the next step is uh, get your get your MP3 file on a computer attached to the internet twenty four seven that people can download from, yeah. and that that next step can be complicated and can be expensive, but it also can be again do it at do it home. I mean, for free. it all depends. On, right. And here's the thing. It depends on what you consider expensive, right? Yeah. It probably can, you know, there are services that will do it for free, but always with the caveat that if it's free in money, you're paying in some other way. Um, but then otherwise you may be able to do it for as little as five or $10 a month. And you consider that with that in exchange, you have near total control. No one ever has a hundred percent total control, right? Yeah. Um, a, a podcast host could decide that, they don't like your content because it's sexist or homophobic or racist and or has you know, too much copyrighted music illegally. Exactly. Right. They they're they're getting threatening letters from record labels, um, things like that. Um, but overall you have much more control than you do with most of these other platforms. And I'll note, I think that the very fact that podcasts could not legally have 
music in them is another reason why they fomented such a a revolution in talk programming. Yeah. Because it is it is by the letter of the law in the United States and most places illegal to make a podcast using music whose copyright is owned by someone other than you. Right. Which Even is those most morning music shows that you would find. Even those morning shows that we were talking about uh they began life as people talking before and after playing records right. and some of that faded away. And now I, I don't know if Howard Stern spins any records at all. To, uh, Howard Stern hasn't spun a record since the 1970s, yeah, I think. But it used to be that they were there just to talk between records and sure. podcasting made that impossible. Uh, we had promised to go back to Jennifer's tour and Jennifer's just uh, sitting there uh, smiling on zoom. Uh, and I don't want to just keep, <laughs> Hey, Jennifer, you should well, definitely jump in if we've uh, if we've screamed too much. But I have more. I want to instigate a few more well, arguments with Paul. Yeah, no, I yeah, I let I leave that to you too. But <laughs> that also, this also gave me an opportunity to go back and um, research the mist. Well, the the uh, a matter of degrees sticker that I saw. Oh, fun! So it was at WRFL in 2015. So uh, imagine I'm touring with Sharon Scott. Um, who has a construction permit at the time to build WXOXLP in Louisville. <laughs> and like Sharon sees on the wall of WRFL college radio station in Lexington, um, the sticker that says a matter of degrees, WXOX 90.6. And she's like, what is going on? Cause that's a fictional radio station. Yeah. Um, WXOX never existed. But and she, yeah. And yeah. so Sharon was really involved with the fight to save uh, a college radio station at Vanderbilt, um, WRVU, after students lost as access when the license was sold off. Um, so inspired by her time in college radio and also kind of activated by all of that, um, she applied for a low-power FM license for Art FM. So it was a strange coincidence that we saw this WXOX sticker. Um and then we did some digging at the time, and there was a a description attached to the film's trailer on YouTube that said, a college student living in a commune decides that he doesn't want to go on to law school. When a corporation takes over the campus radio station, he decides to disrupt the graduation ceremonies. Uh, I love, Paul, how you described it as overly earnest. And I do wonder if I would had the opportunity to see this film 30 years ago, if I would have thought that it was very no, sincere. I think, I think it's a very retrospect. Yeah. Right. Uh, Jennifer, point. maybe, but I want to. Maybe I could ask you about this twenty year of podcasting. What do you think it's done, uh, especially to college? You know, because we know that there was this trend in college radio to to have it, to consider it uh, backwards looking and and old and going out of style. And now we've spent the last you know our you know here on Radio Survivor, however many years we've been doing this, we've been uh, disproving that. But I I wonder if there's. Uh, I mean, I imagine that podcasts have gotten a lot of young people excited about radio oh, again. Oh, yeah. And we've talked about this. Uh, before I answer that, I just have one more kernel about a matter of degrees. Um, so because uh, I got uh, at the time in 2015, I researched it. So the movie was filmed in Providence and much of it was shot at Brown. Um, and the plot was apparently inspired by changes made at WBRU. Um and there was an article in the Brown Alumni Magazine at the time, and uh, a Brown alumnus and music supervisor said 
that it was inspired by WBRU's changeover from freeform to commercial formats. Wow. Um, and so uh, Randall Poster um, and Jack Mason, both class of 85, co-wrote the movie after graduation. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Tying yeah, all that I, up I, in a bow. I don't think I I knew that. I was just you know exactly. I was I was just tr- drawing threads together on the wall here, trying to trying to work out my conspiracy theory over like uh, yeah. over a matter of degrees. I know, um, and and we were just obsessed with it after seeing the sticker. We're like, since Sharon had been involved in the fight to save the Vanderbilt Station, it was just too. All of this was just too eerie. Um, but back to your question, Eric. Um, yeah, I mean. This idea of podcasting and the excitement around podcasting is bringing young people to college radio. I mean, and, pe- and young people have not lost interest in radio. Like college radio has been continuing year after year. Um, but I know people who are using podcasting in a variety of ways at stations, either either like in their marketing of it, like oh, maybe we can attract more young people to our community station or our college station by by hyping that we also provide podcasting. Um, And it's also a service that, you know, when the rest of campus is suddenly, everybody wants to start a podcast. So a college radio station can also make some money by opening their studios and inviting people in the campus community to come in and Mm. and we'll engineer a podcast for you. You know, it's what we've been doing for years already. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. The fight I wanted to start with you, Paul, because you started our show, the, the the conversation about the 20 year anniversary of podcasting, you begun with RSS. There's no there is no podcasting without RSS. You have implied, but it does seem like in 2023, RSS is not necessarily the first thing that people think of or know. Like uh, what I'm hinting at. Well, they is don't. That, I mean, it's a hidden technology. Yeah, yeah. I, but what I'm what I'm getting yeah, at, it's what a I'm hidden being, technology. What I'm being sneaky about though is two particular platforms: Spotify and YouTube. Both are podcasting platforms, and it's a complete weird lie because they're not. Uh, my my son, you know, uh, three years ago was telling me about this podcast, and I was like, "Oh, I'll check it out." And it turned out it's not a podcast. There is no RSS feed. It's only available on the Spotify platform. Well, it's just in the same way that, you know, we consider a Netflix movie to be a movie. Yeah. Even though it has never seen celluloid and never been projected in, in a yeah. theater, unless they right? wanted to win an Oscar, they got to get, unless they want to win, exactly. win an Oscar. Yeah, right. right. But it still probably has never been on celluloid. At but YouTube point. very recently, uh, allowed people who make content on YouTube, and I was one of them at the moment when it happened, to call one of their uh, you know playlists the podcast, and you can go there and watch podcasts. Yeah, but so, those podcasts are not you. They have it, no. It can feed. be the it can be the case that we would not have podcasting if it weren't for RSS, and also be the case that twenty years later. Podcasts don't have to be on RSS. Yeah, just the right. same way they don't have to be on an iPod. Right. Well, that's I made the exact same comparison. So I was actually on a podcast earlier this week, the New Media Show, you didn't tell us. Um, which is an industry show. They wanted to talk with me specifically about YouTube because oh, the, because, the comp- because the company I work for uh, and, and I'm a partner in Signal. Okay, I'm glad Insights, you're talking about this. Yeah. We did. 
we did a survey. Uh, we do a semi-annual survey in partnership with Westwood One of podcast listeners. And uh, in our spring version called The Download, we asked a lot of questions about YouTube consumption. And what we learned is that, yes, I don't have all the numbers in front of me because I wasn't prepared for this conversation here. But, oh, sorry. Uh, you know, that of all places that people can cite as a platform for podcasts, more people say that they use YouTube and use YouTube first than any other. It's not a majority because there's lots of places you can listen to podcasts. Oh, interesting. But the two big compares the two big ones are otherwise Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And especially when it comes to to, to hearing new sh- shows and finding yeah. new shows, they find them on YouTube. Again, it's not a majority, but it's more so than any other platform. Interesting. And 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 so, you know, and and very specifically, YouTube does not use RSS. Uh it does not and and yeah. and and, and Yet people make programming that other people consider to be a podcast. And yeah, so and why that's important in case someone out there doesn't isn't as big of a nerd. It it means that if I upload my podcast to YouTube, uh, someone who wants to listen to that podcast on another platform can't unless I went through the trouble to right to, to make an RSS feed of it somewhere else, not YouTube. And if, so, and, and if they're not, and if they don't uh, use uh, YouTube Premium, they will have a hard time stay listening to it in a car with a yeah. lock screen, you know, just right. all the, it becomes much more complex there. Um, yeah. And so the next stage of research, which has not yet been done, which I, I hope and expect I'll get to participate in, is exploring, asking folks who listen to or consume what they call podcasts on YouTube, getting much more into details of what it is. Like what, what is actually a podcast is. Yeah. yeah well, they have I mean, to have that's a microphone a, in front of them. That's a really important question. Right. And, and so yeah. my contention is, and that's where I was a little bit of, of a friendly argument with one of the hosts of oh, uh, the new media show, uh, Todd Cochran, who, who owns Blueberry, uh, a podcast hosting oh. platform. That we pay for a service. <laughs> That's it. That we pay for. Yeah. Todd, I've known Todd for, for a good decade and he is opinionated, but he's also, he's always up for a good, good debate. Um, is that, you know, at this point, you know, a podcast is what a listener tells us it is. Yeah. And fighting over trying, trying to tell someone they're wrong as a listener or consumer of podcasts is only going to tell them that podcasts <laughs> aren't for them. No, it, it oh, mean basically, yeah. right? I mean, it's the same thing. You know, you talked about gatekeeping college radio, right? Yeah. If if a if a new student walks into a college radio station and the first thing they hear is your musical taste sucks and isn't punk or isn't indie or isn't indie enough or something, or even you know, gets that impression from yeah uh, from a full well, from body language, <laughs> right? Then then they're going to feel like that's not for them. Yeah, and it. I mean, it makes me think about the early days of podcasting. We've done episodes about this where there are these podcasts that people might have derided as being amateur, but those were yeah. some of the early podcasts. And uh, it sounds like that sort of argument, like, oh, well, that's not really a podcast right. because it's not this format. Um, I, I like that more all-encompassing idea of of letting people decide what they think a right. podcast well, is rather and- than – the industry. Jennifer, right. I think I think you mentioned this when we weren't recording in front of the audience, which we're doing right now, even though this is our podcast and uh, it really is 
so so much fun for us to have this conversation that uh but the audience is still there and i i actually worked on my essay that i'm going to post on radio survivor i worked on it today about the fact that i've become a that that youtube is now bumping up there and becoming one of my favorite podcasting apps and um i listen to different kinds of shows as audio while i'm outside the way i used to listen to a podcast and not all of them are in the same genre as the podcasts that I used to enjoy. And that's partly because YouTube has um, accidentally or, or somehow nurtured some other genres that, um, that work really well on YouTube and get an audience. And those, those creators have developed their craft and it's, um, it's not the, it, it's mostly uh, the video essay is what I'm talking about primarily. And there are some creators that have created hour long, video essays a lot of them are media critiques these days and so they're either making fun of some piece of media or really doing a deep dive into what that piece of media means metatextually and the visuals of those videos are very enjoyable but they work really well also as radio and i've been and that's a that's a genre of youtube that i've been listening to that i don't think exists in the same way uh out there in pure podcast land. Um, there's also one of the things I like about YouTube as a podcasting app that I don't think podcasts off of YouTube can do the same thing is a uh, one-off things that make great audio, I think can find an audience easier on YouTube than they can out in podcast land. Well, like, I mean, right. I mean, one so there's event, nothing like a, like a, like a, like a talk. A talk that happens somewhere that's an hour and a half long and was posted to YouTube is easier for me to find in the video search engine of that Google has set right. up on than it is out there when I want the same thing. Right. I mean, exactly. And so what you're talking about are the advantages of a consolidated, verticalized platform. Yeah. When you have one company that Built owns- by a company that likes to do search. That is that 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 does search really well. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and 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 so that's that's obviously a certain advantage compared to a distributed system, right? That has no central locus. The advantage of the one that has no central locus is that it's hard to destroy. It's hard for one company to decide, hey, we're not going to do this anymore, and to lose everything that was ever done. Yeah, I used right. to have to it, search it, for that content using Google search just, engine. It's just harder. Yeah, no, I and agree. Go, I agree. Go from and the so, Google that I found to my podcast app and search for the same thing I found on Google, and then sometimes I couldn't find it. So I think where we're leaning <laughs> is towards the fact that for any creator, you're probably thinking about more than one platform for what you do. Yeah. In many cases, that's, you know, that's really it. And, and I think the other part that I would always advise is that you own some channel in all of that, that there be some way in which what you've created, should you be kicked off, accidentally have your, your account canceled because you did something or because that company goes away. Yeah. That you don't lose your stuff. I think about that all the time with college radio and you yes. know, where there's some stations like at some point, like, yeah, there's some stations that have not had websites. So they're, 
kind of everything is on social media or like all of their updates are on social media versus on their website, which hopefully the website will be. Oh, that drives of, me crazy. Will be saved by the Internet Archive or something. But but it's so much easier, right? It's just so much easier. It is. Well, and, and, and stations will do things that are so ephemeral, like they'll only post stories on Instagram, you know. Oh, and then, right. <laughs> so, yeah. And I think but, I mentioned this on an episode, like Haverford College revived their radio station and I chronicle the history of Haverford Radio. So I was doing screen grabs because a lot of what they were sharing before they had a website was on social media, you know, and I wanted to capture that. It's just, ooh, it makes it so challenging for historians, you know, when you don't, when your stuff is just in all these different places and when you don't own your stuff. And anyway, I could go on and on because um, a lot of college radio stations have changed websites over the years too. So right, you lose stuff. Oh my if you're gosh. digging into the history, you have to research what the actual URL was at a given point in time so that you can hopefully then track that down in the internet archive. There's That's no fun. stability. Mm-hmm. Well, Jennifer, we should, let's talk more about your last, <laughs> yes. the, the last, because I, I could, I could try to start another, uh, not, they're not fights. I get really excited to talk to Paul about. Podcasts. Yeah, no, we should we should let our listeners. Um, uh, we we should save our listeners' ears by um, <laughs> just so, wrapping up shortly. I'm gonna I'm gonna give just like a real snapshot of a tour. A visual arts school of visual arts. School of visual arts. Art school in New York City. WSVA is the station. Um, I haven't written up this tour yet. I'm still kind of in research mode, but. Um, this station was, was really, one really cool thing about it was, um, I mean, it feels like they've been in their station space for a long time and it, it seems that the station dates back to around 1970 as a carrier current radio station. Um, so many carrier current stations. I know. So many. Well, and so many stations I'd never heard of before. So like there are so many, there were so many carrier current stations that people, you know, may not be aware existed. So yeah, um, maybe 1970, they started, um, they're in this space on the seventh floor of a building in the heart of Manhattan and killer views, like a lot of windows and the students there were joking, like, this is way nicer than my apartment. Like a yeah. lot of them were living in <laughs> small places in different boroughs. And, um, you know, so people talked about how nice it was. And it's at an art school. So there were also, you know, if you poked around, you might see people's sculptures and paintings that have been left behind. And they also had, this was the school that had a book similar to what I saw at Sarah Lawrence's station. Um, but in this case, it was a book where people were sharing drawings. So there's a lot of visual art around the place, which I thought was great. Um, apparently, I guess Keith Haring hung around the campus back in the day. And then there were rumors about like, oh, there are rumors that Kurt Cobain came to the station. I found no evidence of this whatsoever, but... <laughs> um, that, you know, just kind of the, the campus lore. They had just hosted what they said was their first punk show that was super successful. Uh, so uh, like like Sarah Lawrence, they're also hosting small music shows on campus. So they hosted a punk show 
and it was sold out and 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 again like you know kind of things coming back to life after covid people were saying wow this was and these were students who've maybe only been on campus for a few years um they're like this is the largest turnout i've seen for any event on campus was our punk show that was sold out and it was only you could only go if you were a student and apparently there were people who were not students who wanted to come to the show and so they were really excited about that like oh my god we did an event that got that's getting buzz beyond the campus um so they were they were super excited about that um uh, so i've been digging back kind of looking at old trying to find old websites for the station to track down this history and um again you're gonna have to stay tuned and <laughs> look on the website after i finish all of my research but but it's fun and um you know i've been to a handful of radio stations at art schools and that's something that I'm kind of intrigued about. Interestingly, um, RISD, Rhode Island School of Design in Providence, does not have a radio station. So not every art school is hip to that. Mm-hmm. Have they ever? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to be definitive, right? Um, I mean, it sounds like they've had some ra- radio activities in the past, Um but again, like imagine the number of of carrier current stations that are completely lost to history. You yeah. know, I I continue to uncover them. Well, so oh. I I mean I when I look online and I do a search, I don't know if they're still there. Radio RISD, our RISD, uh, at uh, it's it has a Tumblr site, which which does not mean that it is the most <laughs> uh, yeah. last updated February of twenty sixteen. Yeah, it's not um, not currently because we yeah. yeah. I've had it been active I would have visited cuz Sure, I, of course. I visited the campus. Paul, when does your episode of um of the oh, media it, it, show It, it is available. It is available now. I looked it, for it. I didn't see it. They do it live uh and um and so it's almost available almost Was it the July 5th episode? Yes. Why didn't they put your name on? Too many vowels. <laughs> right. Well, we, have, we can put a we can put a link to that in the show notes. I had to join it a half hour in. Uh, yeah. I, you know, but okay. um, but I, I'm the last hour of the hour and a half. Very cool. of the program. I will check that out. Wait, the link that I have here is. I'll figure it out. You can I'll listen figure to it out. And it's, it's a spirited discussion, is what we will say. Great. I put, I put a link in the show notes to. Uh, my visit to Media Geek in July 2009 as well. Cool. <laughs> Going way back there. Um, so, yeah, I'll have more station tours to come. I visited a few in Canada also this spring. So, can look forward Fantastic. to hearing about that as well. Very cool. Well, I want to say, uh, because it's the podcast, oh, there you go. You, you already posted it in the show notes. Um, that it's a pleasure to be podcasting again with you guys. You know, we could let the listeners know here uh, in the after hours section of our podcast that we that we, it looks like we might have taken a two year break from <laughs> regular podcasting, and it may very well be true that we're um, we're getting our feet back under us, and we'll have more to talk about, and we'll have guests, and we'll be back on the air with fresh content more often. And yeah. podcast listeners won't be surprised to hear that, but um, 
people on the radio have been hearing. People on the radio might not know. Uh, not they anyone any regular listener to us that's still around uh, knows very well that we've been doing some reruns. They must have caught the, they must have caught wind that it's been. Uh, I might have heard this show. I, <laughs> I can let people know. I'll let you guys know too that uh, I try to do a twelve month rule, but sometimes it's a sometimes it's a six month rule, and then once by accident I played the. Uh, I played the um, the the baby Lindbergh episode like twice in like a three month period because I just forgot that I had done that. Uh, but for the most part, reruns are in, on a yearly cycle. It's the best of Radio Survivor. Yeah, well, we have a lot of evergreen episodes that I'm very proud of. A lot, you know, when we talk about radio history and we talk about radio culture, especially when it's backwards looking, not present tense. Um, there's a lot we can say that that doesn't go out of style. Yeah, no, and it's great that it's great that this that these shows that we spent a lot of time on and had interesting guests. It's great that they continue to get new life and and new ears on them. So thank yeah. you for doing that work every week. Uh, but I yes, can't wait to you. make a new evergreen episode about about the a matter of degrees. That's that's my. That's my <laughs> I niche. know. Yeah, we should have a watch party and. And discuss. I know. I I can't believe I keep forgetting. Like back in 2015, I was like, "Oh, I really need to watch this." And well, watch it on YouTube before it goes away. Before someone files a copyright claim and it disappears. I'm I'm gonna pick it up. I need to do that from uh, from uh, uh, Movie Madness. Yeah, they might have it at my my local. Video store as well, so I'll I'll, I'll seek that out. The copy- I, I don't I don't have a VHS player, and I don't really want to get one. So I'll I, loan you one I of just mine. went to the YouTube. Oh my god! Um, I wonder my if- my video store will also let you borrow a VHS player. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we mad as well too. They yeah. do, but I'm yeah, they do. All right, uh, well, I I should. It was a pleasure, guys. Thank you. It was Thank so you, everybody. Fun. Thank you.